the game. It's a You're listening to Industrial Evolution. I'm your host, Chad Perry, CTO and software engineer. You can find more episodes and contact information on our website, industrial.fm. Enjoy the show, and if you need help with custom software, data integrations, or strategy, be sure to reach out. That's industrial.fm. Hey, everyone. In this episode, we're speaking with Ron Rock, co-founder and CEO of MicroShare, an IoT software company that was perfectly positioned at just the right time to help the industrial world respond to COVID. And not just respond, but also to proactively define new standards of health and safety in workplaces that require physical presence. So in short, there's simply no way to hide from a global pandemic, nor will there be for future pandemics, because industries like manufacturing, distribution, energy, and many others don't have the luxury of remote work. But in Ron's words, what organizations can do is to create a social contract with employees, partners, and customers that they will be operating in a safe environment no matter the threat. And that social contract should be supported by tools that enhance work, not create more cost and barriers to getting that work done. But that's just the tip of the iceberg because Ron sees us entering a new era where asset tracking and contact tracing will be a part of every single thing around us. So truly an internet of things, which may be more accurate to call an internet of people and things. And of course, this is a future that should be extremely careful to regard the privacy of the individuals who are supposed to benefit from these tools in the first place. So Ron, great to have you with us. Chad, great to be here. Thanks so much. And what a great introduction. I feel like I feel like we're done. <laughs> I have a lot more questions to come. So, And I know that this is not your first company, so you're kind of a pro at solving big problems. So what I want to know first is just a little bit of background, how you ended up starting MicroShare and having this focus on asset tracking. Well, that's that's a great question, Chad. So a lifelong entrepreneur, I've started my first company in the 80s and successfully exited before the end of the decade. And I've spent my entire career in big organizations, banking, insurance, healthcare. And so my experience has always been with large, scalable, resilient, secure, often regulated data. My last company was a company called Knowledge Rules. I sold that to Accenture in 2010. And my clients were some of the biggest companies in the world as well. GE, HSBC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, which is the government taxing entity of the UK. And so my partners and I were thinking of what to do next. And we were intrigued with the idea of cloud, mobile, and enterprise. Cloud and mobile were easy for consumers. We didn't have a place to store our pictures from our iPhone or back up our phones. But in enterprises, we spent decades and trillions of dollars locking everything down. And literally overnight, they're being asked to take the, the desktop and, and make it available on my new iPhone or take the mainframe computer and put it up in the cloud. So that's how we started down this space of all of this disparate data coming together in secure ways. And some of our big customers led us down the path of moving into IoT. And we looked at the IoT opportunity where, depending on who you listen to, there will be anywhere from five to 55 billion sensors in the next three to five years. 
And we looked at all those sensors as just an example of exasperating that problem of so much data and how do I manage it? So that's how we got into this space in general. We started putting sensors on in rooms and desks, occupancy, predictive cleaning, environmental monitoring, waste management. And along the way, we were one of the early pioneers in indoor asset zoning. So putting indoor sensors on things like wheelchairs, infusion machines, ventilators, hospital beds, and saving hospitals all kinds of money in, able, in being able to find these assets more effic efficiently, improve the throughput of patients through the hospital. So we've really spent the last five years in this IoT, what, what I call digital twinning the world, creating virtual replicas of our physical world so we can create efficiencies, lower our carbon footprint, save money, and ultimately create new revenue streams. So that kind of sets the stage of where we were uh, in 2019, right before COVID hit. Yeah, there's there's so much there. So one of the things that you mentioned was that we've spent trillions of dollars and decades locking this data down. And that's a whole different set of problems that we could talk about. I mean, you're talking about on-premise migration to the cloud. And of course, we've seen a lot of resistance to that, as well as a lot of uh, in, embracing and, and an understanding of the opportunity there. So coming back to the asset tracking part of this, this is also interesting because you're talking about uh, you're talking about where asset tracking fits into a broader set of applications and how that supports the digital twin. So I think of a digital twin because I'm a visual person. I think, oh well, this is a a, a visual way that we can see what's going on in our world and, and interact with it. But tracking, of course, is a huge part of that because you need to understand where the dynamic things are that are happening in your world. So I know that your tools are useful across a broad range of industries and applications. So I want to kind of narrow down the context here. Industrial organizations are in a really tough situation right now because many of their people can't work from home. And unfortunately, there will be more pandemics most likely, according to the experts, we know that the world is getting more globalized. So this is not something that's going to go away. And so it seems like you think that there is no, no going back to the pre-COVID days, just like there's no going back to, say, the pre-9-11 days. So how do you and MicroShare fit into this new reality, given that context? So you're absolutely right, Chad. Uh, I, the analogy I use is like 9-11. We never went back to air travel the way it was on September 10th of that year. We now have a global infrastructure in place of metal detectors. We all know the drill, whether you're leaving from Singapore or, or London or New York, we take our laptops out of the bag. We don't go through the metal detector with our bottle of water. Uh, we take our shoes off. But that took us a decade to figure out. The years after 9-11, international travel Domestic travel was a nightmare. Nobody had that figured out. And so I look at the, the, what's happened right now with COVID-19, and it's very similar. There are things about our society now that are never going to go back. This idea of, of th that we can each get sick from each other and spread in a global way and literally stop the earth from, from spinning seems to be you know, they're the kind of things that were saved for Hollywood movies. 
And all of a sudden, we've seen in the last year that that, that can absolutely happen. So we've, we've been working with some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, providing our contact tracing solution. Um, for your listeners' sake, our contact tracing is not using smartphones. It's a wearable device. It's off-the-shelf Bluetooth that we've been able to upgrade with our firmware from our asset zoning technology. It tracks people anonymously. So we're in over 22 countries right now with our product. And the concern about do I know how often Chad is taking a cigarette break or who Chad's hanging around with too much or how often he's not at his desk. There were all kinds of personal concerns around what we're doing with that data that, by the way, smartphones, there was a lot of pushback uh, when when this first came out from Google and Apple's smartphone app to do this, a lot of the same things. So this idea that we're going to track people's contacts, we, we talk internally about um, uh, a, a, a social distancing score. Are we going to have some kind of social distancing scores going forward that 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 are dependent on how many public places you go to, how many unfamiliar surfaces you touch, how many strangers you're around, and are you too close to these people? We're working with some of the nursing homes in the UK right now where they see tremendous value in having this contact tracing. Guess what? It turns out Patients die in nursing homes all the time because one of them got sick and suddenly it spread through the facility uncontrollably too quickly. It was just in a microcosm of a single nursing home. So the ability to start tracking at that kind of level, we see, we see value. We have another interesting uh, development going on in the Middle East right now where they want to look at our contact tracing for large crowd control. There are many religious holiday events in the Middle East where you have tens of millions of people showing up in a small space for three and six weeks at a time, and the number of people that get trampled to death. And so being able to, to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to optimize the flow of large volumes of people moving through space. And the thing that's interesting about this and our at indoor asset zoning and all of our solutions, Chad, is that they're disruptively cheap. I like to say to many customers, they're almost free. To do these kinds of things just five years ago would have been cost prohibitive. That's why we didn't do them. It's only because we now have wearable devices and sensors under $20 with three and five year battery life. We have cloud infrastructure with Azure or IBM or AWS or Google that is a couple dollars a month. And the combination of those things allow us to do things with technology and data and tracking that just weren't even possible five years ago. And so it's the combination of all of those things that I think we're going to see a common digital infrastructure around sensors and data gathering. We're already starting to see sensors in our clothes, sensors in our shoes, sensors we wear around our wrist. Uh, I've just got the latest iWatch 6. It's just amazing. But all of those, all of those, I'm working with a company right now that says, hey, Ron, we, uh, we want to charge you $30 a month. And we want you to give us all of that personal data. We want the data from your iWatch and your Nike sneakers and your, you know, your, 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 your gloves and all these things. And I say, well, why would I do that? That's my personal data. 
and they say, well, we're going to track 100,000 men just like you, your age, your weight, your dietary habits. And every time they have a heart attack, if your data looks like that the day before, we're going to notify you. And so this idea of, oh, wait a minute, you're going to give up, you're, you, I'm going to give you my personal information, unlike Facebook, who just uses it at their will for their profit, we're going to start creating value where a company says, we'll give you an extended quality of life in exchange for you giving us your data. Well, now we're starting to touch on that social contract that you mentioned in your introduction. Everything that we're talking about capturing this data, if there's a fair social contract, I get value, you get value, we both understand that, that's how we've been able to successfully deploy so much contact tracing. And it's interesting because COVID came along at the exact same time that we're having this huge debate around Google and Amazon and most uh, notoriously right now, Facebook, and how they're using our data without our permission, creating billions of dollars of market value. And so we know the value's there. This is our data as much as it is anybody else's. And so beginning to, to figure out how we work that social contract is really what where I spend most of my time right now. There are a couple of stories here. One is yet another story of technology convergence. We're seeing that new ways of living and interacting across multiple industries, across personal, across business, are being enabled by this convergence of cheap sensors and artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff that comes along with Industry 4.0. But we're also seeing this convergence of the social, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily social because it, it overlaps into the business in, as well, but this this awareness of the the impact that the technology has on our the way our society functions in terms of freedom. And so you mentioned the religious gatherings, you mentioned the privacy. I want to take it back to the industrial side because this is really where if you look at if you look at where the future of the workplace is, there are many companies that are saying, oh, we're, we're just going to go fully remote. We're dedicated to going fully remote. And I'm not sure I buy that. I don't know that I don't know that I see that happening in three to five years that sticking around. I think that there will be some sort of equilibrium. But there are some companies, in the, especially in industrial, that they just can't, they, they can't work remotely. So I think the big question on everybody's mind is, what are the new rules of engagement going forward, considering, considering all the points that you made? Employers have a legal obligation to provide a safe environment for their employees to come back to work. And the employees have an obligation to participate in whatever rules their employers decide so that everybody can be safe. But you then layer on top of that different government regulations. You lay on top of that unions. You lay on top of that varying degrees of safety and types of work, anything from mining to nuclear power plants to military operations to warehouse and distribution to food uh, distribution. And so in all of these, there's complexities, there's nuances uh, around that. But in general, uh, we, we 
looked at this and we bundled something together, a group of solutions called Clean Equal Safe. The ability to monitor exactly how many people are in a space at any given time, real time. Imagine getting ready to go to work, or I'm sorry, go to the cafeteria, and you look up at the monitor and the cafeteria is green, yellow, or red. Green, go on down. Yellow, if you can, wait. Red, sorry, you're not allowed down now. There's too many people. We know so much now about the effect of air quality on the ability for these contaminants to spread. And so monitoring real time at a granular level, the air quality in these spaces and, and connecting this with your industrial air handlers and, and air conditioners and purifiers so that real time you are always optimizing the temperature and the, um, the compilation of all of the, uh, all of the things in your environment. Um, being able to provide real time temperature monitoring uh, again, areas that get too hot, too much humidity are conducive to these kinds of, of contaminant spreading. Things like predictive cleaning. Let me start aligning in an automated fashion the number of people that come in and touch things in their environment and the automation of cleaning. We're working with uh, U.S. Robotics right now and their, their robotic vacuum cleaning systems. And they're looking at ultraviolet lighting on these. And so now having robots follow around based on occupancy and utilization to constantly be keeping things sterilized. And then one of the other simple things is, is what we call touch-free feedback. When you walk into any space, whether it be your school or your office building or your factory, as, a, as an employee or a guest, if you see something that alarms you, what do you do with that? The analogy I use is all of us have gone into meetings before COVID-19. You get into a conference room and nobody can get the big AV, the TV, or the, the, the presentation equipment to work. And it's always a, a, a 10 minute delay looking for the person who's gonna come in and get it going. Or you come into a conference room and the previous people haven't cleaned up after eating. And so the host is usually embarrassed and cleaning some things up here and there. And so now how do I put a touch-free feedback where anybody, can scan and communicate directly with the building. I see something that needs to be cleaned. I see something that looks dangerous. I see that too many people are in one space. Open up those real-time communications. We all feel better as humans. We feel better if we know that if something happens, we know what action to take. And so again, this is an example of the technology coming down in cost enough that I can, in a, not only am I opening up real-time communication between my stuff, my desks, my, my restrooms, my cafeteria, but I'm opening up real-time communication between building management and my occupants to provide real-time responses. It's things like that, Chad, that I think we're gonna see become very ubiquitous. We're going to see lots of different sensors in airports, in hospitals, in shopping malls, all with the idea. Uh, the UK, it's great. I, I spend most of my time in London and in the subway system, they have a theme. Everybody in, your, everybody in the UK knows this. See it, say it, sorted. They're, they're always saying to their riders on the, on, the, on the tube, if you see something, say something, get it sorted. We're now bringing that to a level of automation. The question is, who do I say something to? 
I, I look around, I, I see something that worries me. Well, now I give you real time, three, one, three or five button pushback. Hey, I see something that makes me nervous about the conference room. I see something that requires attention right away. This person, somebody looks sick to me. So opening up that real-time communication. So the combination of the sensors, the data, the feedback, the wearables, many of these are going to stick around for quite a while to come. We started out selling contact tracing. We have a, our business is a subscription SaaS business model. And we started out selling all of these solutions, Chad, in 12 months. People thought, well, I only need contact tracing for a year. Almost all of our clients are now renewing. And what's interesting is our clients are some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. What do they know that we don't know, right? So this is not a one and done. We had a contact tracing user group meeting the other day. We, we, we now host these. They're, they're global. And we get clients from all over the world sharing best practices. And somebody said, you know, we gave these... We gave our employees this infrastructure, this clean equals safe. We gave it to them to make them feel safer, make them be safer, and to let them know we care. How do we think about taking that away now? That's a really interesting point. The building management example that you gave, I think, is a really good analogy. I think the last time we spoke, you put it as something like, People want smart buildings, not smart stuff and things, right? And I think that applies on a on a higher level too, because you're you're talking about a new infrastructure of health and safety and well-being. All those things come together. But on the flip side of that, I would say asset tracking is obviously nothing new. So in a sense, we're really just talking about massively shifting behaviors and technology being at the point where it can support that. You're right, Chad. The Prior to now, the only thing you could do for indoor asset tracking, you're right, it's been around for a long time. People like Walmart pioneered the use of it with inventory management. We see all kind, we see manufacturers putting chips in the appliances themselves so that they can be scanned everywhere from the manufacturing process through distribution, through uh, making it into the consumer's home. But it was all primarily around RFID technology, which was expensive, expensive to to utilize, very expensive to install. You had to tear open walls in hospitals. You had to tear open you know, walls in, 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 in factories and warehouses. And so what's changed is the economics. It, it, the, the economics now, I like to say at the price point we're at, we're going to have sensors on every dog, cat, kid, manhole cover, snowplow, refrigerator door, toilet seat, soap dispenser. And all of these granular snippets of data allow us to be more efficient, less wasteful, improve qualities of service. There's a global phenomenon going on right now called ESG, environmental, social, and governance. ESG is all about sustainability, reducing our carbon footprint. There's a new law going into place in the EU in March of this year where large buildings are going to have to report. How are we doing with our environmental, air quality, uh, uh, utilization? How are we doing with social, occupancy, contact tracing? 
How are we doing with governance? Are we capturing all the data that we need to report at a granular level on how we're doing? And the combination of those three dimensions of sustainability we begin to give us the sense of a report card. Think of it as a credit score. And, you know, you, you and I change jobs or change geographic locations pretty frequently. And you have lots of criteria that you use to decide where you'll go to work or what kind of environment you're going to work in. And in the next just four to six quarters, you're going to start looking at an ESG score to derive, hey, I have choices. I'm going to choose to work in places who are aligned with my values, my values of safety, my values of carbon footprint, my values of fairness in the workplace. And all of that is driven by the kind of data that we're talking about now that comes out of this new infrastructure. A fundamentally new paradigm. This is our post 9-11, our generation's version of that, our post COVID-19 paradigm. Do you, when you, when you talk to customers or potential customers, are you finding that those in the physical domain just get it? Do they get it right away? Absolutely not. And it really varies by where you are in the world. Um, Asia Pacific, they don't have to worry about getting it as much. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're not, they, they don't have the Western culture that Europe and North America have. And so there's much more of a consensus that the collective is more important than the individual. And so you can see government bringing in this kind of technology, being more effective in making this stuff happen. In Europe, Europe is very far ahead in the whole ESG and sustainability and save the planet and and reduce waste mindset. And so we're seeing a lot of uh, traction there. The friction though does come into play with again GDPR, you know the privacy laws in Europe are very strict, and so so when we get into this contact tracing and environmental monitoring and occupancy, you're starting to skirt up against a very gray line of am I violating Bra- uh, Chad's personal rights versus the collective, and so there's a conversation, and then you get to North America, and it's no surprise given the way that we handled COVID nineteen. But even prior to COVID-19, um, we're just lagging way behind the rest of the world in ESG, sustainability. Um, the, the, the rights of the individual are perceived to far outweigh the rights of the collective in North America. And so we've struggled to get a lot of these, these technologies to work. So fortunately for MicroShare, we are a global company and we're a global company because of that. Uh, I learned so much from my clients around the world. I'm able to develop best practices. I'm beginning able to develop thought leadership about how to make these things work and then repurpose, repackage that messaging to try and bring my North American colleagues up to speed on it. So it's, 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 it's a broad answer uh, across the spectrum. We've touched on some very important topics, especially privacy. And you mentioned the ESG score, but just in general, this term score and just thinking about where this leads to and how we're talking about these gray areas, there is definitely room for concern, especially when you look at North American cultures that are actively, I don't know how to say this, but it's clear that, as you said, they they value the rights of the individual over the collective. And add to that the 
mistrust and arguably growing mistrust, especially with companies, these scandals coming out where companies are abusing the trust of their customers. So where do you see the future in five to 10 years? I mean, how do we, how do we overcome this? And let's just take, for example, one, one thing, let's talk about health scores for individuals and the benefits that that could bring, such as what you're seeing in uh, the UK. Maybe you can expand on that example as well. It's, it, it, I think as we move to the Western cultures, it all comes down to economics. And what we're learning right now is that companies like Facebook can create almost a trillion dollar market cap leveraging data. So we know the money's there. The question now becomes how do we distribute that money more fairly across those people that are producing the data and those people that want to monetize the data. I keep coming down to scores because the, the a score is an easy way for us to understand complex amounts of data. The, the most obvious one in, in North America and Europe is your credit score. Your credit score has a million personal bits and bytes of data about you, but at the end, it gives you a single number. And that single number tells you where you fit on the spectrum, tells banks or mortgage companies exactly how much money they're willing to lend you. It tells uh, landlords whether or not you're going to be an okay tenant or not fitting in that environment. Credit scores are even used for employment in some countries to make sure that you know, understanding how you are responsible or not. So there's all these things we do with a single score and then underneath the score, think of it as an hourglass. All these things we do at the top comes down to a single score and then you go beyond the score and there's all these millions of complex data points in it. We see in, in Europe right now, in the UK, where uh, insurance companies give you an iWatch. Now an iWatch is six to $900 depending on, on where you're at. They give it to you for free. They ask you to hit 10,000 steps a, a day, at least five days a week. And if you do that over the course of the year, the iWatch is yours to keep. And if you don't do that, then you have to pay a, 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 a modest fee, or at the end of the year, you give the watch back. So, it's an example of what I've just said. Here's forcing behavior that is good for your employer, good for the healthcare system, and ironically, really good for you, but you weren't willing to do it until I threw the free watch in. And oh, by the way, every month that I achieve this, they send you packets of free movie tickets or, or other little trinkets. So, so they're sharing the value. I think that... Um, in, in all the examples that we've talked about, you know, as we come into North America, as I said, Europe right now is ahead of the curve. They've started it, it, in this month, the new laws come into place that's going to mandate the amount of data that companies need to produce around their ESG. And if they don't, they get fined. Typically in the United States, you see California moves before anybody else around things like that. So it, it's not hard to imagine two years from now that California invokes the same thing. And so then you're going to have 50 states, a whole bunch of countries in Western Europe, and then Asia Pacific, and then the rest of the world, all trying to figure out these scores. And just like what happened in 9-11, we're all going to have our own way to solving the problem. And then we're going to get global companies, global companies, whether it be GE or, or Apple or Google or Facebook, 
or Amazon, these global companies are going to say, wait a minute, we're, we're, we're not North America. We're not just Europe. We're not just Asia. We're, we're global. So, so what is the global standard that, that needs to be put in place? And eventually we'll go from regional solutions to some level of global score. So today, you know, usually there's more than one standard. You know, we have Fahrenheit and Celsius. We have Android and iOS. So maybe there's two global standards out there that we can look at. Imagine, imagine 10 years from now, looking at a number of 15 and 27. 15 is North America and Europe, and 27 is the rest of the world. And those two numbers tell us everything we need to know about the, the social well-being of the environments of those locations. And th based on that, that might decide how many shots you need to get to go there, um, what kind of health insurance you need to go there, what kind of behavior you can expect when you're going in those locations, whether you're wearing a mask or not. We'll, we'll just know all the things that we're supposed to do based on that single score, just like we do today with our healthcare score. It's probably something like that, Chad. Yeah, and there's a lot to there's a lot to potentially cover there around the potential abuses. Uh, I mean, just on a personal level, when I hear you talking about, uh, well, you said you said forcing behavior. I, I actually think that what you probably meant to say was encouraging, <laughs> encouraging behavior, and enforcing. Uh, oh, enforcing. Okay, yeah, that yeah, yeah. makes more sense. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that there's a lot that we could potentially look at there. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have have time to dig in on that, but it's definitely going to be an interesting push and pull. I think we're, we're going to, it's just going to be a global learning experience for everybody on a personal level and on a company level. Yeah. The, the big story, just listeners will get this. We didn't stop flying airplanes after 9-11. Some, some bad people figured out how to do something nefarious with something we all love. And we didn't stop flying. We just figured out how to do it to maximize the benefit and to minimize the detriment. We're going to have the exact, we're not going to stop using data. We're not going to stop using AI and machine learning. We're not going to stop getting better at capturing the data, but you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of fodder here for bad actors to do things. And that's where the hard work comes into play. We're going to have to figure that out. Yeah. And speaking of that, what would be the most practical next step for companies that want to get out ahead of this? I think the, the next step right now is to, to look at your work environment and begin a dialogue with your employees, education, social contract, WIFM, what's in it for me, helping all sides understand that, bringing that conversation to the table and introducing technology earlier rather than later, sooner rather than later, I think is the next best step. It's, it's I'll, I'll repeat myself, it's almost free. This isn't an economic decision. The technology's there. Now you need to start putting it in your environment, opening up the lines of communication with your, your ecosystem and figure out how to best serve everybody's interests to create a safer environment. I think that's well said. So one last point, if somebody wants to get a hold of you or MicroShare and take that next step, what's the best way for them to do that? So I'm easy to find on LinkedIn with a name like Ron Rock. There's not a lot of competition there. Or you can track me down through our website at microshare.io. All right. Thank you so much, Ron. 
Thank you, Chad. This has been a lot of fun.